Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. This morning we have a cluster of texts beginning in Galatians 6, 9, and 10. These are the words of God. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Then in 2 Thessalonians, but ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then 1 Peter 4, 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Our Father, God, hear our prayer now as we come to you as a hungry people, greatly in need of the food that only you can provide. Feed us your words, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. Amen. As you know, or as most of you know, or as most of you should know, one of those. It's our custom around this time of the year to present a state of the church message. Sometimes the message addresses the state of the church generally, uh, like across the nation. Other times, like today, the message concerns particular issues that are relevant to this congregation, that are relevant in this community at this time, and that's what we're going to be doing today. Before uh, unpacking each one of the passages that I read, I wanted, I wanted to uh, take away from all of them together a common takeaway point that they all have. If we hear the message this morning rightly, we're going to see that there's a fusion of joy and stamina that is a peculiar work of the Holy Spirit. A fusion of joy and stamina that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. Without the Holy Spirit, there are Stoics who have plenty of stamina. They go and they go and they go, but no joy. And then there are other people who don't have much stamina, a lot of joy. They're not paying attention to anything that's going on, really. That's why they're so joyful, (laughs) because they're they're inattentive. So there are people who are inattentive. They're not attentive to their duties. They're not attentive to what they ought to be doing. They're not diligent but they're joyful, and there are other people who are very diligent, but they're just gritting their teeth and gutting it out. When you see someone who is being disciplined, who has stamina in one direction over an extended period of time, and joy attends it, joy is surrounding it, joy leads them on, and joy is driving them before it, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. You can be assured that the Holy Spirit is at work in joy and stamina together. And if we're in the path that we ought to be in, if we have the challenges set before us that are going to be set before us if we are reading our Bibles, if we are following the leading of the Holy Spirit, if we're walking in the right way, then we're going to be in great need of the Holy Spirit to perform this work for us in us. We're going to need both joy and stamina. We're going to need both of them. 
we will need that particular fusion of joy and stamina. You don't want to alternate between them. You, you don't want to toggle where you're wiped out and joyful and diligent and cheerless. Um, you want them all together all the time, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Galatians, in the first text that I read, Paul exhorts us not to give way to weariness. Don't give way to weariness. And the way that we're to do this is by keeping our eyes on the agricultural metaphor. We, we will not grow weary if we keep our eyes on the harvest, it says. So in verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. All right, so diligence, diligence through to the end. Keep your eye on the harvest. There's a point to all this. And then in verse 10, good works done for all men, but especially for the household of faith, are a form of farming. Plowing hard ground can seem like an eternal distance from the ripening grain of autumn. So look ahead. Remember the whole point. When you are first plowing in the spring, you need to be thinking about autumn. If you're not thinking about autumn, you're not thinking. God wants you in your Christian life to be thinking about the harvest. He wants you thinking about the harvest when you are interacting with non-believers, as, you, as you're talking to a Muslim, as you're talking to a Buddhist, as you're talking to an atheist or an agnostic. You're farming. What you're doing is you're tilling hard ground. And he says, especially when you're dealing with those who are of the household of faith. You need to think in terms of the big picture. Now, there are most vocations, most callings have this kind of harvest time built into them. They've, and it's a cycle that, that, uh, that is extended. Sometimes, if you've got a factory job and you're making widgets and a good day is 15 widgets and a bad day is 13 uh, widgets and you've kind of got the average dialed in and that's all you do all day is make widgets, it, in order to keep from going mad, you're going to have to contextualize that activity in a larger point, a larger picture. What are you there for? What are you doing? You're feeding your family. You're paying tuition for your kids. You're doing, you're doing things that, that have a point. Everything involved in this is teleological. It's got to drive toward a point. We, are not, uh, we were not meant to simply dig a hole, fill it up, dig a hole, fill it up. Um, that is not what God calls us to. And notice that Paul exhorts us not to give way to weariness. And he says, when you think teleologically, when you think about the point, when you think about the destination, when you're thinking about the harvest, that is keeping you from weariness. Now, let me make a, another distinction. The same thing applies in the Thessalonians passage. Let's make a distinction between being weary in good work and being weary of good work. Being weary in good work is the way you're supposed to be. You're supposed to go to bed tired. If you, if you think you're working hard, but you don't go to bed tired, if you're not tired when you go to bed, you're doing something wrong, all right? If you are, at the same time, you say you need to be tired. Weariness, that's not the kind of weariness that Paul is saying to avoid. He doesn't want you, he doesn't want you to become weary of doing good work. And you become weary of doing good work when you've lost the thread, when you've lost the point, when you don't know, why am I doing this again? Tell, remind me, why did I sign up for this major? Why, why, why did I 
take this job? What am I doing? And you need, to a- you need to ask and answer those questions. And if you cannot ask and answer those questions in the light of the word, then you need to reconsider your position where, where, uh, where you are, where God has called you to be. So in Galatians, Paul wants us to not grow weary of what we're doing by thinking about it. He wants us to zoom out, look at the whole process. He wants us to look at the plowing through to the harvest. He wants us to think in terms of agriculture. In Thessalonians, the same exhortation is given. Do not grow weary in doing good, he says. In this instance, in Thessalonians, it's an exhortation given to hardworking saints who are surrounded by goof-offs, leaning on their shovels, or maybe carrying their shovel from one side of the hole to the other, that kind of person. Not only must we not grow weary in the good work that we are doing, we must also not grow weary in the work of teaching, exhorting, discipling those around us who don't understand the biblical, un- biblical view of work and who don't understand it in their bodies, who don't understand it in their hands. So uh, you can't go out with a group of people to dig a ditch or to do, perform some task and then you understand work and you're digging the ditch, and the other guys are standing around chatting when they should be working. They're not breaking a sweat. What are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? And you just stare at them. Why are you staring at them? Well, because they're just staring at their shovel and staring at the ground, right? They're just staring at the work. But they're part of the work, right? You're just staring at them. They're hard ground. They need to be taught. They need to be encouraged. They need to be brought along. If you understand what God has called you to in a if you understand that work is a blessing, it's not a result of the fall, if you understand that work is a gift of God and you enter cheerfully and joyfully into the work that God's given you, part of that work is bringing along people who don't get all that. Part of, the, part of your task, part of your assigned task is to encourage those who need to step it up a little bit and, and encourage them to step it up in such a way as to not make them want to uh, dispatch with you. Do it winsomely, in other words. So in Thessalonians, you need to not grow weary in doing good work, and you need to not grow weary in doing good work when you're in the company of people who are not of that mind. In Corinthians, Paul says that we are to abound in our work. Abound in your work. We are to be committed to it, and we are to be steadfast and immovable. This work that we are to abound in is work that is not in vain. This means that God wants us to hustle, and it means that hustling matters. It means that hustling matters. And remember that this is in the chapter, this is verse 58, the tail end of chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection of the dead. It's all about the new heavens and the new earth. It's all about the consummation of all things, right? And Paul says in that context that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So our abundant work now is not going to be considered vanity then. Our abundant work now that we give ourselves to now is not going to be considered by God a vanity then. Or as R.C. Sproul put it, right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. Right now matters eternally. If a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ will not be forgotten at the last day, 
And Jesus says that explicitly. A cup of cold water uh, given in my name is going to be remembered. Then what of the greater works that are assigned to us? One of the problems that we have in this regard is that we, we make a mistake. We, we think that, because, you know, well, here's the mistake we make. We back off. We look at, all, look at this world and its vanity and toil, and we say, we think we're echoing the preacher in Ecclesiastes when we say, it's all going to burn, man, you know. It's, it's all going up in flames. It's all worthless, and it's all, it's all going to burn. The problem with that is that that's false. Every one of you here is going to live forever. It's not all going to burn. What, what you invest in people, the, what, what lasts forever? The Word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of the Lord endures forever, and every person you meet, every person you talk to, all the time, every person in your home, in your household, has an immortal soul. They're going to live forever. They're either going to be in the presence of God, enjoying the beatific vision forever and ever, or they're going to be shut out from his presence forever and ever. You, are, you have not dealt ever with a temporary person. There are no temporary persons. Everyone here lives forever. Do you see that? And that means that the things that you do, the cup of cold water that you bring, the meal that you prepare, the diapers you change, the clothes you wash, the tuition you pay, all of those things are things that are, th those are not going to go on eternally, right? But they are in service of something that is going to go on forever, the person that you're loving, your neighbor, the person that you're giving yourself to, your neighbor. Those things, that your, your salary, your job, your work, your lawnmower, your, uh, your activity, all that bustling is scaffolding. It's just scaffolding. And the scaffolding is going to come down. There is going to come a day when all the scaffolding of this world is going to come down. And then we will see the building that we were all working on. That we're, we're not going to see nothing. It's not like God says, okay, everybody, I want you to build a ramshackle scaffolding with no building inside. And then when the last day comes, I'm going to tear it all down and we're going to burn it and and then I'll say, my ways are inscrutable or something. <laughs> no, no. You're, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's permanent. It leaves a mark. What you do matters, and what you do matters forever. But you want to keep your eye on the ball. You want to keep your eye on what's actually going on. You don't want to get so attached to the scaffolding, right, that you start painting the scaffolding and start... Uh, treating the, you know, moving your furniture in on the scaffolding and living as though the scaffolding were the whole thing. No, the scaffolding is real. The scaffolding is important. The scaffolding is there for a purpose, but the scaffolding is temporary. But to, but to confess that the scaffolding is temporary is not to say that the building is temporary or that the work is temporary. The work is the very opposite of temporary. Do you see that? It's, it, um, Right now, last forever. Jesus says, use unrighteous mammon to make friends for yourselves so that they will receive you into the eternal habitations. When you evangelize, when someone is brought to Christ because you shared the gospel with them and they receive you into glory, when you bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and they walk with the Lord all their days and they bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and then when you can stand before God at the last day and say, here am I and the children you have given me, reapplying another passage, that, none of that is temporary. None of it is temporary. And what instruments did you use? Right? What, what tools did you use in bringing them all there? 
Well, the tools were disposable. All right, the, the, tools, the tools are not necessarily there. You know, uh, when you sacrificed, you took a second job to be able to afford the tuition payments for a Christian education. God's not going to give you a box of receipts at the resurrection and you're, here's all, here, here are all your canceled checks. That's, that's not the way it works. You, what you want are the people there. The, you want the word of God to last forever and the, and the people to last forever. And you want to use all this te- the temporary disposable tools knowing that it's not a disposable world. You're, you're laboring on something that matters forever and ever, and you're doing so with disposable tools. Then Peter, in, in 1 Peter, Peter tells us to be given to hospitality and not to be put off by the rudeness or thoughtlessness of others. Be given to hospitality, he says, without grudging. Well, why does he say without grudging? Well, when the Bible tells us not to do something, it's because we want to do it, <laughs> right? Um, if nobody ever wanted to lust after a woman in his heart, Jesus never would have said, don't do it. He says, don't do it. He says not to be angry with your brother because you want to be angry with your brother. When, when the Bible says, don't do that thing, it's because there is something that's attractive about that thing to us. Show hospitality to one another, he says, without grudging. Why does he tell us without grudging? Because there will be many opportunities when you're showing hospitality to begrudge it. There will be many opportunities to mutter under your breath about what's going on. More about that later. So what are some particular points of application for us in all of this, for us as a congregation? First, as our congregation ages, this is something that I think is demographically true across the the country, but it's very true in our circles also. As it used to be, back in the day, um, it was not as common to make it to advanced age, to an advanced age as it is now. Uh, ironically, as medical science has progressed, the better it gets, the more diseases we get because we are now finding out what happens to people in their 80s and 90s on a large scale. We are now finding out what happens when people live that long. We're now finding out what happens when a lot of people live that long. I know that a number of you have been taking care of elderly parents or elderly relatives. This is a good and right and holy thing. Some of you have moved in together while others are having to navigate this transition from varying distances. As lifespans increase, one of the things that also increases is the need to take care of the elderly. Something that used to be relatively rare is becoming relatively common. Something that used to be relatively rare is becoming relatively common. So, as a congregation, you are to be commended for being the kind of support network that aging families need and require. And the next generation downstream also, incidentally, needs to be taking notes on all this because this is a problem that's not likely to shrink. What you want to do is model what those of us who are in the generation where we're having to take care of elderly relatives need to model what we This is a basic golden rule thing. Do as you would be done by. Do, do for your parents what you'd like your children to do for you. Do for your parents what you'd like your children to do for you. So, 
And, and, and as we're looking at one another, as, as a family is p- faced with a particular challenge in this regard, and they step in to take care of mom or dad or grandpa or whoever they're, they're taking care of, the, the rest of the congregation needs to be prepared to be picking up slack on their behalf. We're, we are connected to one another in important ways. This is a problem that's not likely to shrink. So in 1 Timothy 5.8, if any provide not for his own, and especially for his own household, uh, for his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. You as a congregation have not denied the faith in this way. This is an area where you're living it out. I see a number of you living it out. I see a number of you making these sorts of choices. They are the choices that you ought to make. And when you make hard choices like that, God honors it. God blesses it. This is what God's word uh, requires. And I know everybody's situation is different. Some, uh, sometimes when there is just no physical medical way to keep someone, to have someone in your home, there's no, you know, there are all kinds of variables. So don't get on your judgy horse about other, what other people are doing. There are many, many challenges here. Simply uh, take it in stride and say, this is a reality. This is something that God has assigned to us. And from what I've been observing in this congregation, I've seen a lot of faithfulness in this regard. So well done. Another area that I I want to talk about that is characteristic of this congregation, our congregation is filled with the spirit of entrepreneurship. We have lots of bright ideas. Also some not very good ones, but that's a you know, that's just averages, right? You're dealing with hundreds of people. Our, our, our community here is the size of a small town. There are lots of, lots of ideas. Hey, there's lots of hustle, lots of let's do this, let's do that, let's do the other thing. It's all to the good, but you have to remember, this is something that we want, to, and there's a, there's a tightrope to walk here. Christians are tenderhearted people, and we have to remember, we have to remind ourselves constantly of the key role that failure plays in every genuine free market, market system. If you had a system in this world where nobody was allowed to fail, you're saying that we're going to have a system in which nobody ever gets any feedback about anything. Right? And what's going to happen is standard, standards are going to plummet. Right? You're going to, if you had a school, if you have a school where no one is ever allowed to flunk, no one is ever allowed to fail, you have a failing school. Right? It's, it's that simple. If, if you have a school that everybody passes, everybody prizes for everyone, everyone gets a ribbon. If, if you have a school where no one fails, what's happening is the headmaster's failing, the, the board's failing, the, the school is failing. If you have a community where no business fails, then something is drastically, terribly wrong. Something is drastically wrong. But Christians are tenderhearted, and we want to rush in as sort of a safety net, an all-purpose safety net. Now, one of our texts is from Galatians 6, and there are a number of other principles that come out of Galatians 6. One of them is everybody should carry his own burden. Everyone should carry his own burden. And then it also says in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. So each one should carry their own weight, and each one should be eager to pick up the other end of the log when someone's struggling with something. And there is a real wisdom call in that, right? There are times 
there are times, you know, someone has been preparing to start his own lawn mowing business and he finally bought all the equipment and two weeks into the season he breaks his leg. Well, his friends who rally around and mow lawns for him for six weeks, that's the good and godly thing to do. That's, that's a good and godly thing to do. But unless the Lord's building the house, the one who builds the house is laboring in vain. Sometimes when a venture fails, when a bright idea fails, it fails because it wasn't a bright idea. It fails because it was a lousy idea. Sometimes it was a bright idea, but badly executed. Sometimes it fails and everybody in that neighborhood sees why it failed. Everybody says, I tried to tell them, I tried to tell them 15 times and it, no, nobody, nobody wants kale ice cream. So, <laughs> I, I just grabbed that at random. Sorry if anybody was thinking about it. So, so nobody wants it. It failed. It failed for a reason. But there, there are times, Job's, Job's business ventures failed also, but not for any of the reasons that his counselors or his friends thought. Right? There, there are people who will come up and say, well, I knew all along that that wasn't going to make it. It wasn't that good an idea. Well, Job, Job his ventures failed because, the one, if, because God is sovereign. So sometimes God wants to shut that venture down. Sometimes God wants to say no. No, that's not what I want you doing, or that's I, I want someone else to succeed at that, not you. God is, God is sovereign. Sometimes Christians are not immune from bad ideas, and Christians are not exempted from the sovereignty of God. And other times, someone's venture takes off, and it's just glorious and wonderful, and and yay. So we need to re, we need to remember that failure is an important part of what we all need to learn. There's a strong, and related to this, there's a strong temptation for many to think that objective standards of excellence only exist for as long as you're in school. There you are evaluated right out of a grade book. Everything is clean and tidy, right? You get feedback on, the, on a clock, right? You, there are midterms, and then here's this exam, and then you've got your finals, and then you get the, the, get the report card, and then you're passed on to the next grade. Everything is sort of regimented, and you think, and the temptation is to think that because it's all so predictable and regimented, it's objective. Right? It's objective. Uh, and then when you graduate and you go out and you start your own business and nobody's giving you midterms, no one's giving you a final report, no one's giving you a report card, it's easy for you to think that, well, out here I make my own rules. No, that's not, that's not true either. Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. By mean men, it means contemptible men. He will, not, he will not stand before nobodies. He's going to stand before kings because people who are good at their work, cream rises, the Bible teaches. Cream rises. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Generally speaking, those who hustle, those who are intelligent, those who are industrious, get ahead. All right? Generally speaking, that happens. Don't make the mistake of transferring from your school days when everything was all objective to now I'm on my own, now my own boss, I can make my own determinations and I can just decree that this will be a wisdom thing. This is a wise move. No, God, there's, a, there's a God's report card that is delivered at various times and in various ways. So you're not, you're not to operate in any sort of subjective way, and your friends are to, are to be praying about when to rally around, when to help, and when to not help. 
when to rally around their brother and when to not throw good money after bad. Right? That's, that's what we are called to do. Everybody's supposed to bear their own burden and we're all supposed to bear one another's burdens. In a vibrant, dynamic community, as this one is, there will be many ventures, many businesses, many people going in many different directions, and we can pray a hearty uh, prayer of blessing on all of them, knowing that God's blessing on some of them won't be what we would have predicted. Right? God's blessing on some of them won't be the way we would have designed it. Generally speaking, it goes that way. That's why we have Proverbs. Uh, so a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, as it says in the book of Proverbs. And sometimes the guy wins the lottery. Sometimes he inherits a pile from a crazy ant. Sometimes the brakes go in the direction of the person and, and you're thinking, God, had uh, I been consulted on this apportionment of your providence, it would... It would not have gone that way. That guy, that guy is the last person who ought to have $10 million. I'm the one who ought to have $10 million. <laughs> and the, that's where the mask comes off and we see the little, the little envy devil coming out. So what happens is we, we want to make sure that we understand that God generally blesses, if you're industrious, if you're hardworking, if, if someone's converted... They're converted out of a wild and crazy life. All of a sudden, the cocaine bill goes way down. All, all of a sudden, he's not spending all kinds of money on, on uh, crazy things. And, and he turns around, and all of a sudden, he's upper middle class. And how did this happen? How, do, how am I driving a minivan? It used to be a chopper. It used to be a motorcycle. And now it's a minivan with three car seats. How did this happen? And I have money in the bank. How did that happen? Well, the cocaine bill went way down. All sorts of things went way down. Generally speaking, that's the way it goes. But not always. Jo Job's friends made the mistake of thinking it was an inexorable law. So if you obey God, then it's going to go well for you. Um, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. It wasn't, he didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. Uh, he was born blind so that you could see the glory of God. God was up to something else. God had another project in mind. God had a purpose in Job's suffering, but it wasn't what his friends thought that it was. So you want to understand that God is predictable generally, and the Proverbs tell us all about it, but it's not an absolute thing. We, it's not like saying the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the square of the other two sides. It's not that kind of a law. It's a generalization. A man reaps what he sows, usually. Generally speaking, that's the way it goes. Then there's the hospitality dilemma. I referred to this earlier. There's a reason why Peter says that hospitality is to be shown without grumbling. Why does he say, don't grudge it when you show hospita hospitality? Hospitality is a principal way of showing love to one another. And hospitality can be a principal occasion for thoughtlessness and rudeness. Love, in short, creates opportunities for a lack of love. Every time you, show, every time you sacrifice something significant for someone else, you have created multiple opportunities for that person to be uh, insufficiently appreciative. You've created any number of ways 
for them to not show the adequate amount of gratitude, especially if you're the kind of person who does good works looking for the gratitude, looking for the comeback, looking for the person to say, oh, you're, so, you're just a wonderful person. You're my savior. Jesus is my savior, but you're my savior. You don't want to be that kind of, you don't want to be that kind of person. Love sh creates opportunities for a lack of love. Sacrificing creates opportunities for the other person not to sacrifice. And when some people are farming thoughtfulness, remember I said at the beginning, keep your eye on the harvest. All of this is koinonia farming. Some people are farming thoughtfulness. This provides an occasion for others to start farming thoughtlessness, taking it for granted somehow. So take care and beware. Take care and beware. And also, don't, uh, I said earlier, don't get on your judgy horse. There are, there are certain manners, certain customs that vary from place to place, culture to culture, subculture to culture. And sometimes there are people who are just rude in every culture. Right? Some, uh, but rudeness in one culture is not always rudeness in another. There are some people who, um, you know, you give them a, a gift and within 48 hours you get a thank you note on, uh, with exquisite calligraphy and you got that thank you note within 48 hours because that person had a sweet southern grandma who sat them down when they were two, when they were three, when they were four, when they were 11, and say all thank you notes must be sent within 48 hours or within 36 hours so that it gets there within 48. And then you had a sweet southern grandma too and you gave someone a gift and you don't get anything, you don't hear anything for six months. Right? And you say, See, this is, I heard a sermon preached on this recently. Yes, but you're, you heard it and applied it to the wrong person. <laughs> there's all sorts of reasons. There's all sorts of th things that could come up, right? They did send a thank you note, and it got lost in the mail. They, they never were taught that. They, they were appreciative and thanked you six times after the, you verbally when you got it, but you didn't get the thank you note, and you attach superstitious value to that, and so you're, you seize on that. What, what's happening is you're showing hospitality with grudging. You're giving, and the, every, every gift you're giving has got a string at, uh, attached to it, and there really needs to be no strings, right? No strings. Peter says, show hospitality to one, one another. You're loving the other person. Sometimes the other person, it's, they're just being plain rude, right? Uh, this was many decades ago, but uh, it went down in lore in our family's history. My parents were, had, had someone staying with them, and, and they sat down to the dinner, and the guest said, well, I'd rather have spaghetti. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, th sometimes things like that happen, and there's, it doesn't matter who your grandma was. <laughs> You just don't do things like that. But, all right, when, when that sort of thing happens, you, we have to, we need to have discounted for that beforehand, right? We've already budgeted for that. You, when, you're, when you show hospitality, you need to have budgeted for the lack of an adequate response. You, you ask somebody over, and then they don't ask you over. But Jesus says you should make a point of asking people who can't have you over back, Right? Jesus wants us to snip all those ego strings. Hospitality is a good thing. We want to be involved in one another's lives, 
but you don't want to, we, don't, we want to be involved in one another's lives. We want to love one another, but we don't want to be all tangled up in one another. And hospitality with strings is one of the best ways in the world to get all tangled up in one another. So when you're farming thoughtfulness, every t- when you do a math problem and you get the answer right, how many, there's one right answer, how many wrong answers are there? infinite number of wrong answers. When you do something right, there, how, many, how many ways are there to get it wrong in the response? There are a multitude of ways to get it wrong in the response. And you know what? You need, to, you need to have that surrendered beforehand, lay it before God and say, you know what? That's okay. Because you don't forget what I've done. Right? You will never forget what I've done. Remember the cup of cold water. So, Take care and beware in this area. You are a hospitable group of saints. Uh, When it comes to unloading trucks for people or having people over or taking meals to people who are laid up, you're a hospitable group. And so the temptations that accompany hospitality, temptations for hosts and guests alike, will be plentiful. Temptations for hosts and temptations for guests alike will be plentiful. And this is a place where that's going to happen. The reason it's going to happen is because you're a hospitable people. So going back, going back over this, you are a, a congregation. We're, we're a congregation where have, we have elderly and we've got little tots running around. We've got, we've got the whole range of ages. We're going to have temptations that come with every age up to and including taking care of aged relatives. We have a lot of people building businesses and building um, building new ventures and going after it. We're going to have all the temptations that go with that. And you love one another. You're having one another over. You're going to have the temptations that go with that. You've heard me say this before, but this applies. When you enroll in a math class, the very first thing you run into is math problems. Day one. <laughs> Should I go over this again? The, um, Day one, the first day you enroll, you signed up for the class, the first day you have math problems. The second day you have math problems. The third day you have math problems. Nothing but math problems. When you give yourself to hospitality, what do you have? Right, the first day, hospitality problems, right? You have hospitality problems. When you give yourself over to a spirit of entrepreneurship, what do you have? Entrepreneur problems. When you build a small business, what do you have? Small business problems. When you have an investor, what do you have? Investor problems. Right? Do, you, do you see what I'm... This is the way of the world. God wants it to run this way. He, he doesn't want us to say, oh, we're Christians. We're going to do the hospitality thing, or we're going to do the hustle thing, or we're going to do all these things. And on top of that, no problems. No, that's not, that's not the way it works. We are called to our work in an angular world. Work is not a result of the fall. Adam was given his task of exercising dominion before he disobeyed the commandment God had given him not to eat the fruit. And he was given a helper for the task, the task of the cultural mandate, before he disobeyed the commandment. God has called us to our work. God told Adam to multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it. God gave Adam the cultural mandate before there was any sin. And then, after we're sin, God gave Noah the cultural mandate again. The cultural mandate is renewed to Noah, so the fact of sin doesn't abrogate the cultural mandate. We're supposed to work. We're called to work. Work is a good thing. 
Now, this is not the same thing as being called to the work that we assumed that we were going to get done today. God often changes up the schedule on us. How many times have we said something like, I didn't get anything done today. I didn't get anything done today. When what we meant was we didn't get any of our plans accomplished. All we did was what God assigned to us. Oh, only that? <laughs> Since my agenda is clearly superior, since my, my authority is clearly, clearly superior to his, I've got a beef, right? Because I had a checklist of things. I've, I had Monday all prepared on the, assumption, on the assumption that Monday, tomorrow, is my day. And I get to fill it up however I want, and I get to discharge it however I want. And then when God fills it up with a bunch of other stuff, right, I was going to get this done and this done and this done. I was going to get my desk cleared off, and I was going to do, and I was going to do all of this stuff, and I spent it down at the Department of Motor Vehicles, right? <laughs> Why? Because that's where God wanted me, right? You, you spend it down there because that was the work God assigned to you to do. And he, he might have the Spirit yell after you. I, I also want you to do it cheerfully, I don't want you to grump, be grumpy like everybody else in there. So, I like what the King James Version says about the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 16. The, um, it says that they addicted themselves to ministry. The word is tasso, and we could render it as devoted themselves or bound themselves or dedicated themselves. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. These people love each other and they're hooked. These people have given themselves over to the ministry of the saints. They love each other and they're hooked on it. They're bound up in it. They, this is what they're all about. But remember, when you love one another, this is, not, this is not a fluffy clouds, marshmallow clouds and unicorns and rainbows sermon. Loving one another when you're in business, when you are... Uh, when you've loaned money to someone, when you are helping them out when they're sick and when they're, uh, you know, all the different things that come up. Life in a working community is still angular. Life in a working community is still angular. There are bumps, there are misunderstandings, and then worse than misunderstandings, there are understandings. <laughs> no, I understood perfectly what you said, right? And you understood what you said when you said it. The understandings are harder to deal with than misunderstandings. Uh, collisions, rivalries, envies, competencies, incompetencies. The fact that someone's regenerate doesn't mean that they're competent. The fact that someone's regenerate doesn't mean that they, you know, but he's born again. Yes, but he still installed your cabinets upside down, right? <laughs> but he's born again. He comes to church every week. Yes, but the cabinets, the pots fall off. So, competence is not, this, not, not connected necessarily to spiritual condition. There's honest evaluations and much, much more. And what that means is, and, and I want to finish with this exhortation. Uh, we're told in the scripture, how can, you, how can you say that you love God, you know, uh, you say you love God whom you've not seen when you don't love your brother whom you have seen? Right? How can you say you love, your God, love God whom you've not seen when you don't love your brother whom you have seen. But there's another additional layer that we can put on that. The God whom you have not seen is perfect. The God whom you have not seen has no warts. The brother whom you have seen 
has warts. The brother whom you have seen has issues. The brother whom you have seen is difficult. And just between us girls, just truth be told, so are you. <laughs> You're difficult too. You see that? You're one of the difficulties. We're all one of the difficulties. When you, when you step back, when you zoom out, and you look at a community that's trying to love each other and trying to live out this koinonia faith, it's not, it's, it's not as though God's looking down at Christ Church and saying, um, man, everybody's got issues except for that one guy. If he knows. How many, how many people here have issues? How many people have sins that, are, that's, that you feel like you track in with you when you come to worship God? How many, you know, hundreds of people here. How many sins? Right? Lots of, sin, lots of sins. And God wants us to learn how to love the head, who's perfect, by loving the body, which isn't. God wants us to learn how to love the head, which is perfect, who is perfect, by loving the body, which isn't perfect. And it's not a, uh, not a bug, it's a feature. This is what God's called us to. So all of these things, bumps, misunderstandings, understandings, collisions, envies, all of these things are part of what God's called us to confront and overcome, confront and walk through. And all of it is life in the body, which is to say life in Christ. This is, this is a design feature. This is how it's supposed to go. We're supposed to love each other through the difficulties. We're supposed to love each other through our own limitations and despite the other person's limitations. We're supposed to love one another. This is the commandment that uh, John says that I give to you. Love one another. Love one another. And that doesn't mean it's not a basket of puppy dogs love for one another. It's a real life love one another. Real life when people are difficult and angular and, and sometimes cross and crotchety and sometimes they, they don't follow through. And all of the problems, all of the problems, that's where love shines. That's where true communal Christian love takes effect. Our Father and God, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the gospel that you provided for us. We pray that as your spirit accompanies us from this place, you would teach us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the grace that you so lavishly bestowed on us. Amen. Meals together are to be a time of harmony. We are all of us companions here. The Latin word for companion comes from two words, meaning one who shares bread together with you. As companions, we should want to be companions on more than just one level. We are growing together, being knit together as we partake, and so we should really want to go together. Now, you've heard us emphasize before that we do not want you suspending yourself from the supper. We do not want you feeling like you've had a bad week, and so you're going to send yourself to your room without supper so that mom and dad don't have to do it. You are not mom and dad, and you don't get to make that decision. You need the strength, you need the encouragement, and so you need to partake. If you did badly last week, then why are you trying to help ensure that you will do poorly next week? This supper is not a reward for being good. This supper is not a reward for being good. It is nourishment for sinners in various states of recuperation. You've also heard that the verse about leaving your gift on the altar and going to be reconciled to your brother applies to tithing and not to eating. It is a gift on the altar, not food from the altar. But somehow churches are better at encouraging the kids 
to stay out of the fridge and pantry than they are at discouraging the kids from contributing money to the household budget. But having said all this, it is important that you take this nourishment for the task assigned, which is to strive for like-mindedness. Do you need to refrain from this meal because someone else in the body is partaking and you and he are not speaking? No, not at all. But if this state of affairs is a standing one, then you need to be partaking so that you will have the strength to go speak to them and put things right. And if every time you've tried that, it only makes things worse, then you need to partake so that you will have the strength to involve others who will be part of a real solution. In the message, we've heard about some of the challenges we have, perhaps about some of the difficult relationships and so on. Maybe the other person is difficult. Maybe just you are. Maybe you both are. In any case, you both need the Lord's grace and help, and this table is one of the places he supplies it. So come in faith. Come with gratitude. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for the kindness that you've shown to us. We thank you for setting this table and for what it cost you to set it. And Father, we commit all of this to you. In Jesus' name, and amen. amen. The charge is this. The church is not a rest home for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. And so the distinction between the church and the world is not sin is out there and there's no sin in here. That's not the distinction. The distinction is sin is not being dealt with out there, and sin is being dealt with here. But it's present in both places. So the word, the word deals with our sin. The gospel deals with our sin. The sacrament deals with our sin. With the admonishment from one another deals with sin. So you come, you come to church not as a place to pretend to the world that you don't have issues. It's a place you come to have all those issues dealt with by all the various means at God's disposal. And there are many. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen.